Andrea Bell, welcome. Thank you. So excited to have you on board. Just a little background. I met Andrea um, a few years ago when I was doing my somatic experiencing practitioner training, and she was one of my favorite uh, teacher assistants. And we bonded over talk about minimal shoes and foot health and nature and barefoot walks on the beach. So it was... Um, friendship at first sight for me and um, as she is really involved in something I deeply care about we wanted to have her on as a guest to talk about ecotherapy and ecopsychology I can't wait to tell you more and for her to share with you but let me first tell you a bit about her um, Andrea Bell a licensed clinical social worker and somatic experiencing practitioner is a practicing somatic psychotherapist, ecotherapist, and California naturalist. She's the founder of Somatic Wise, a therapy and ecological practice with the mission of supporting life, healing, and regeneration during these troubled times. She's been a licensed psychotherapist since 2003 and began practicing somatic psychotherapy since 2009. She also holds a certificate in therapeutic touch for psychotherapists, and she has served on the assistant team of the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute, where I met her since 2011, supporting somatic experiencing trainings in the U.S. and abroad. She also served as an adjunct faculty at the California State University Long Beach in the Graduate Department of Social Work. She recently launched her own YouTube channel, Somatic Wise, with the purpose of educating the public about self-regulation and biosphere ecosystem regeneration. She's been a regular contributor to the Good Therapy blog. Andrea has been passionate about the helping profession ever since high school when she first learned it was possible to help others heal through relationship and unconditional positive regard. She embraced ecotherapy when she discovered that self-regulation and well-being improve with engagement in nature for individuals, families, and communities. Her passion for native or indigenous plants and the wildlife they support has led her to help restore local ecosystems devastated by land use change and habitat loss. She has a special knack for connecting and working with highly intelligent and creative people and helping them find their particular purpose. Wow, Andrea, so good. Such a wealth of knowledge and experience and passion to have with us today. They say we stand on the shoulders of giants and I am no exception to that. I completely believe in that. And I'm just really grateful that my life path has enabled me to encounter just such amazing regenerative information and practices that are out there and I'm excited to be sharing some of it with you. We are so, so, so excited to have you. Um, we just warming up for this, watched one of your exceptional um, YouTube videos, which I find to be so helpful because it really allows people to meet you, to learn more about nature, to learn more about ecotherapy and, and what you do in this very, um, I don't know, like easy way. It's just easy. It's like you get to hang out with you on YouTube. So now when I miss you, I'm just going to go on your channel and hang out with you. 
Well, you could also call me. I hate being on camera. I really hate it, but I'm feeling a calling to do something to support basically what ecotherapy's purpose is, eco-psychology. Eco-psychology, one of the main goals is to help support the healing and mending of the relationship between humans and nature, right? And I feel like that's one of the most important tasks in front of us today. And it's not something that a lot of people are talking about. I feel like in modern Western society, we've kind of forgotten the fact that everything we do, everything we are, every cell in our body, every building we exist in, every bite of food we put in our mouth is a gift from the biosphere. You can talk about it in spiritual terms, um, Mother Earth, Gaia, and you can also talk about it in scientific terms and say, we are absolutely a part of the ecosystems, but we're so disconnected from that. And that's where the healing, the relationship between humans and nature comes in, or humans and the biosphere. I could say humans and the planet. The planet's going to be around no matter what we do to it. It's just, do we make it an inhibitable rock, or do we support this fragile system of gases and living creatures and plants and topsoil that supports us? So that's the purpose of my youtube channel just to begin a voice among millions hopefully not in the complete darkness just to get it out there this is something that we have to pay attention to and we're so grateful that we get to spread your message to our listeners and readers who are these incredibly aware humans are aware about natural movement, about the importance of um, real food nourishment, and how our whole lives have an impact not just internally on ourselves, but on everything around us. So thank you for helping us do our work with your contribution and just this very generous time that you're going to be spending with us. So Let's jump in. We're going to just start and shoot a bunch of questions at you. <laughs> I've tried to limit myself to just um, 10, which was very hard. So, so I'm curious, how did you first become interested in ecotherapy? Like, is there something that happened in your childhood or something like what really prepared you for this path? You know, I can't even remember where I first heard about it, but I suppose I'm fortunate enough to just have the roots of it within me from Perhaps the beginning, my, my mother's really passionate about animals and creatures and nature. And we had every kind of animal surrounding us when I was growing up. Everything from hamsters and rats and mice and all sorts of lizards and, and horses and dogs and cats. And I guess it was there that I really learned to connect with them. Um, I also grew up in an area that was sort of suburban before Southern California was really as developed as it is now. So you could get lost in the foothills. You could totally get lost out there, probably not too far from where you guys are currently. It was just open rolling foothills and streams and little patches of oak woodland and what I now know to be a mixture of coastal sage scrub and chaparral. And I would get lost out there kind of on purpose with my horse for and my dog sometimes for a long time before cell phones I guess had I really gotten lost I might have stayed out there longer than I intended but <laughs> I think that's where that's where it kind of began I can't remember where I heard about ecotherapy but 
I bought this house that was right next door to a native plant park. And so I got to know the, actually the Bureau of Land Management folks that were involved in the Department of uh, Forestry. I can't remember quite which government department, but these people were passionate about restoring ecosystems and native plants. And it was literally right next door to my house. And I remember one time, one of the gentlemen came by and he says, oh, you know, I've got all these native plants in my truck and I can't keep bashing them around in there. Can I leave them in your yard? And I'll come get them later. I said, sure. Now, the thing about coastal California, actually all of California native plants is that they're very adapted to dry conditions. Um, maybe not all of them. There's some wetter areas in California, but the ones around here where I live in Long Beach are adapted to drier conditions, right? So when he dropped off these plants, it was a bunch of um, five gallon bl uh, black generic plant pots with kind of like sticks coming out of them. I had no idea what he was dropping off because they're all dormant. They were in their dormant phase, which is what our plants do to survive the dry conditions. They drop their leaves, a lot of them, and they just kind of go within and they hang out and survive on their resources until the rain comes again. And then whoosh, they're just blooming. So I had no idea what I got. I had about two dozen of them and they were just sitting on my porch. I'm like, hmm, where's John? Is he coming back? And I'd call him. He's like, oh, I'm so busy. He never came back. <laughs> I just had all these little natives. And I, I had a lot of space and I thought, if I don't put these in the ground, they're going to die. And that's the thing about wild plants. They don't do well in containers. Some of them can get by, but they really want to be in the earth, right? And I planted them and nothing happened. And then the rainy season came and oh my goodness, they just blossomed. They were just beautiful. And I noticed that all the pollinators came. I, I could ramble. You could stop me whenever you want. I could just keep talking. We, we can't because we're riveted. <laughs> <laughs> all the pollinators came back. You know, I bought the house from some very lovely eco-conscious people that hadn't gotten the message about planting uh, local indigenous plants. And so there were some things there, but there wasn't like really a lot of butterflies. There wasn't really a lot of lizards or bees or other pollinators. And when I put in these natives, you know, there was an Artemisia californica, which is the sagebrush and it supports all these insects life. There's Ancelia californica, which is one of the most reliable natives out there. It's a California sunflower. Mine are going, just bonkers with blooming right now. It's just wonderful. And they're bringing all of the ladybugs and all of the grasshoppers. Anyway, my yard started to explode with all this biomass and it was great. And I got hooked. Hmm. And native plants are one of my favorite ways to support healing the ecosystem. Because one of the major drivers, if I, actually I was reading my California Naturalist Handbook again this weekend, and it said the major driver of extinction is not yet climate change. It's, it's getting there and it's interacting with this one, but the main driver of extinction is land use change. That's where humans come in and say, we just, you know, whatever ecosystems are, we want to put houses, we want to put shopping centers, we want to put a road. And it puts so much pressure on all these little organisms that we don't even notice. Mm -hmm. You know, if you like birds, the best thing to do is plant native because birds have to eat the bugs that they've been eating for thousands and thousands of years. And those right. bugs need these certain plants. 
non-native plants support between five and 20 times less biomass than natives do. Wow. That's amazing. There's studies on it. I think there's some variance in studies, but the number is enormous. So I think a lot of our listeners are familiar. I mean, the clearly the concept of uh, ecology and saving the earth and saving plants, like, and I'll be in, like, I'm, I'm interested to get into some of the different ways in a minute, but can you share a little bit about how ecotherapy and like taking care of the environment affects us as human beings? Well, I'll tell you about the impetus for my YouTube channel, which is exactly, I think, answering your question. There was a period of time, I think about two months ago, and I felt like in my social media feed, I was just being hit with one article after another about terrible news about what us humans were doing to various ecosystems around the world and the impacts. I can't remember. There's just such a, you know, if you listen, plug into social media, you know what I'm talking about. This extinction and that devastation and this habitat loss and blah, blah, blah. And I just got a lot of what is known as eco-grief. It's, it's a first cousin to eco-anxiety, which we can talk about. It's a real thing. It's one of the videos I did on my YouTube channel, if you want to check that out, if we don't have time to get to it. But I was overcome by eco-grief, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's normal to feel devastation and loss and rage and powerlessness and all that when all this stuff is happening to destroy not only the very systems that support us, but all the creatures in it. So I took myself to uh, the El Dorado Nature Center here in Long Beach. It's one of my colleagues kind of sardonically referred to it as a, a nature museum. Like this is the only nature we have left. There's a museum. It's not, it's not true. We've got a lot of native plant sites around Long Beach and there's becoming more and more, but Anyway, it's, it's a walled off place that has a lot of um, ecosystems, um, including an oak woodland. And I was walking through there. How, you know how when you get into nature, things that you've been holding can come up to the surface? Because um, in the language of somatic experiencing, when, some, when we have stress, sometimes we'll feel it, but sometimes it gets overwhelming or we have to do other things. So we brace against it, and we kind of numb it. Mm -hmm. And just giving myself the space to walk around inside the woodland or the nature center, the bracing came down. And mm -hmm. I started to drop into the grief that I had. And the more I walked and the more I looked at the trees and the more I put my hand on the tree and literally connected with nature, the sadder I felt about what was going on in the world. And it just got really bad. And, you know, being a smack practitioner, I know by now, okay, there's a feeling. See if you can hang with it. Don't stuff it back down. And I just sat there in the eco grief and just the sadness. And I was like, wow, this is really big. And then something shifted, which is what happens when you sit with things, or at least sit with things if you've got a nervous system with support and experience with doing that, right? Nothing I can say here is therapeutic advice. Generally, in principle, if you have a nervous system that's um, been supported enough to be able to do this you sit with 
feelings and something shifts. So I shifted out of helplessness into action. And what happened was I realized that I was, as I was walking, I had in my pocket a device that I could use to do something about this. And that was my cell phone. A cell phone is an amazing device that connects us with the whole world, with the internet. And I just started like, I, I hate being on camera, but I just stuck my arm out and turned it on myself. And I, and I started talking about how I felt. And that was the beginning of my YouTube channel right there. I don't know if I published that, that particular footage yet, but there was something in there that was really neat. It was this shift from devastation and grief and stuckness to being able to take effective action. And that in itself is a form of ecotherapy. There's so many forms of ecotherapy. If you want to broaden the response to your question, Roland, there's so many forms and I can talk about those in a minute, but we also know somatic practitioners that there's really something to just sitting with your inherent feelings about something and to see what happens next. Am I making sense here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially as I'm, you know, as a, as a fellow nature griever and um, somebody who feels very supported in a natural environment, I feel like that walk felt almost like the support that you needed to feel mm -hmm. your feelings in that moment. And that's happened to me so many times. And I've sought refuge so many times since I was as little as three or four years old. Um, and then, you know, getting older and building shelters and forts and whatever it is that kids would do in magical places in the forest that were my places, uh, naming trees and, and all of that. Um, it is a larger belonging that gives a container to these difficult feelings that we have and we can't lose it. Yeah. We yeah. Can't lose it, or it'll be the end of us. Um, so you said you're going to tell a little bit more about ecotherapy and what ecopsychology are, and maybe that would be helpful to the listeners as maybe they're trying to imagine how they can make use of that or benefit from that or get involved in that. Absolutely. Now, nothing I say is really comprehensive. I've uh, been involved in ecotherapy off and on since the mid 2000s, 2006 six, seven, eight, something like that before I started the somatics, but I haven't done a focused program of study like I have the somatics. I'm starting one this year and I'm happy to do an update with you and to have that would be lovely to have you back with all the new stuff you have for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I've done a lot of reading on it and I do have some training in it. And I know that ecotherapy is a lot of different things. Ecotherapy is the applied form of eco-psychology, and eco-psychology is basically the study of humans and environment, how the natural environment and the biosphere basically creates and then continues to influence and impact humanity and vice versa. What is that relationship like? How is it influencing us? How do we influence it, right? And within there, just like the field of psychology, there's so many different divisions. Um, mm -hmm. Let me just name some off the top of my head. There's a animal therapy, right? What is the relational field like between us and other animals? Or just simply horse therapy, or sometimes I bring my dog to the office 
my dog is just a very, very sweet little creature. And I don't bring her if people are allergic or people don't like dogs or people have dog related um, trauma and they request that they, there not be a dog present, right? So you have to apply it judiciously. But sometimes she's just here and when people walk in, you can see them melt. Mm-hmm. So animal therapy is one way to support people's self-regulation. It's a way to support their capacity to form relationships. Sometimes animals are easier to form relationships with than people are. Or, or at least that's the way some people experience it because animals don't try and pull one over on you. They don't try and exploit you. You know, they're just very simple, straightforward. They're very connected in ways that we humans are sometimes forgetting. Uh, there's horticultural therapy. I suppose that restoring ecosystems um, and native plants uh, soil, all that is one form of horticultural therapy, but there's also gardening, either for food or just ornamentals for human pleasure. There's actually antidepressant microbes in the soil. You guys probably know about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And getting your hands in the study can be in the soil. I'm sorry. There's been studies on that. Getting your hands in the soil can be really supportive of, of just feeling better. It's literally becoming grounded, right? Amazing. And then what else? Uh, Outward bound and other wilderness immersion therapies have been Mm -hmm. around for a long time just because of the observation that people tend to be more self-regulated in nature. We sort of shed this layer of what callousing and, and, and buffering and disconnecting from our physical bodies that especially many white collar workers kind of need or develop in order to keep eyes glued to the screen or sit in a meeting all day, right? There's sort of a a disembodiment when you're working in your brain all day, Mm -hmm. right? So wilderness therapy, just being in nature sort of drops us out of that and back into probably I would say better self-regulation, more grounding. Again, not for everybody. None of this is therapeutic advice. It all needs to be kind of investigated and applied on a case-by-case basis because not everything works for everybody. Right. But it seems like there are some pretty shared benefits that are coming out in studies of being in nature, forest bathing, being out by the ocean, Um, circadian rhythm regulation. I've seen so much study result come out. It's just overwhelmingly positive results. Even watching pictures of flowers or trees Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, putting those in hospitals. And we have a friend who does projects um, back in more of a developing country uh, world with, um, putting nature images inside schools, giant nature images to shift study environments. And all of that is real. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that study too. It was amazing. I forget whether it was blood pressure changes or something, some autonomic measurable variable variable Mm -hmm. improved just by looking at a picture of a tree versus not looking at a picture of a tree. Yeah. There's interesting studies with um, people being flashed, 
pictures of nature scenes versus urban environments and looking how they respond. There's interesting studies with rates of crime in the UK when they plant flowers in certain neighborhoods versus not planting in others. Mm -hmm. So even, even kind of bringing nature into an urban environment shifts things a ton, let alone when we first went into the redwoods and I smelled the sequoias. I was like, I was prepared for the size, but I was not prepared for the smell. Mm. It was it was such a moment of awe. And then how kind those trees are that you can actually go inside of them, which is what you really want to do. You just <laughs> really want to go inside one of those trees. And they've they've kind of sacrificed a bit of their integrity to allow us to do that. And it's just amazing. Yeah. And I'm sure that you've also read the studies about they're finding out that trees actually communicate with each other underground through their root systems. I mean, it's amazing. There's all these little systems going on all the time around us. And indigenous people were a lot more aware of that. But we put our focus somewhere else. Right. So right. anyway, being in nature, the, the exact same things that you were just talking about point to a principle of ecotherapy called biophilia. And the idea is that we're drawn to life. You know, like I said in one of my YouTube videos not too long ago, if you want to completely disrupt a meeting in a peaceful way, bring a well-behaved dog in the room. The meeting will stop and everybody will go, oh, that's so cute. Hello, what's his name? How old is he? You know? You can do that with a baby. I mean, like, people are more polarized around babies, but you uh -huh. bring a cute puppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or so, something accessible. I mean, if you brought in a Komodo dragon, you're going to get different reactions, but there's still going to be <laughs> strong reactions, right? A lot of curiosity. People are drawn towards life. People are drawn towards beautiful plants, too. People are drawn towards natural landscapes. And then here comes the mirror side of it, right? You, I, a lot of prominent ecotherapists, and I personally agree, would say that you can't or shouldn't or it isn't healthy or balanced or really fair to only do ecotherapy like, let's just take from nature. What can nature do for us? What can, you know, how can nature help regulate us? Just like, I guess, when I was walking in the, in the woodlands in, here in Long Beach, there's a shift where you want to give back mm -hmm. you know, that's the reciprocal part of the relationship and that too is very regulating you know many times people say oh my god you're a trauma therapist how can you stand that it's not all bad i mean there's this beautiful back and forth flow i get to meet the coolest most amazing people and be witness to their healing, even as I have to help digest some very difficult and traumatic material, right? There's a back and forth, a give and take, and you can't always tell who's giving and who's receiving, right? And I think the relationship between humans and nature at its core is kind of like that. After a while, you don't want to just come and take and leave. You want to give back. You want to support or at least tread lightly, right? Yeah, well, I'm the one that's picking up the grasshoppers from our lettuce, putting them in a jar, and then taking them to work, which is like <laughs> five blocks away. So then they just come back. And so we just carry them around. I did some um, 
Cat she, she releases them back into the farther away wild, but some, you know, either <laughs> the same one comes back or. <laughs> and so, you know, just trying to plant enough so there's enough for them and for us. But I did some caterpillar removal this morning. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I'm, uh, I don't know what the correct word is in English where you're kind of not excited to touch animals that are slimy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, skittish, I guess. Uh, so I don't feel, yeah, like I don't feel drawn to touching caterpillars, but it's interesting. The more I've learned how to kind of garden in California, it's been a very different experience than back home. Mm-hmm. I I'm touching them now and they're kind of, they're kind of nice. They're not at all slimy. They're kind of soft and fluffy and I just take them away and I hope that they can't crawl back. <laughs> Well, you might be condemning them to uh, starvation if you don't put them on the plant that they need to eat. Just a thought. Well, you know, I'll see. I'll see if our neighbors have something they might enjoy. <laughs> Sick of on the neighbors, huh? <laughs> so, can you speak a little bit about? You mentioned eco anxiety earlier, right? So, to me, it brings to mind. I mean, p- people are always anxious about the in- the environment from like a perspective everyone wants to to recycle or to do a sort of a cleanup that kind of a thing plant a tree somewhere but then other people simply do nothing about the environment or feel like they can't they like their part doesn't really matter oh, pe- people lecture me on how i just shouldn't put stuff in the recycle because we can't recycle all of it Okay, so what's the question? Like, what why do people, what is eco anxiety? Like, why do people just kind of, kind of freeze around it? Aha, aha, that's such a good question. As a somatic practitioner, Galena, I know that you're familiar with the threat response cycle. The threat response cycle is inwired into every mammal and some other animals as well. And basically, if there's a threat coming, we will startle. We will orient in the direction of the threat. And if it is deemed to be a threat, an actual threat, not just a random noise or random visual stimulus, then the fight or flight energy begins, right? If, there's, if the threat is like something that's coming to get us, then we will fight it or run away, unless it overwhelms us, in which case we will freeze, right? And freezing is sort of a death preparation, or at least I'm going to hunker down and have some analgesics so I don't feel too much pain until the threat goes away, right? So that's basically the threat response cycle. It's automatic. It's wired into every one of us, all mammals, right? Well, it's pretty easy to understand if it's an individual threat, like the one I always use to illustrate this to my clients in my offices. Imagine a grizzly bear is coming in the door. We better amp up with a bunch of fight or flight energy. Fight, flight, uh uh-oh, he's going to get us or she overwhelming us. We better freeze and go still and hope they lose interest. Well, the same threat response cycle that I'm describing there in that I suppose the example isn't as silly. If you live around grizzly bears here in the city, it's, it's a pretty harmless example because we don't have any, right? But my point is that we go through the same threat response cycle when we perceive threats to our environment because on some level we know, we kind of consciously forget, but on some level we know that if it doesn't rain 
we don't have water. If we don't have trees and plants, we don't have oxygen. If all the animals die and the web of life dies, then we're going too, no matter how amazing our science is, right? Because we're dependent on all these enormous systems, and not to mention we're emotionally attached to them. They're just really beautiful, beautiful places and creatures are being destroyed. And that's why the threat response goes off in us. And that can be echoing. That's, that's what's called eco-anxiety. Close cousins, which functionally are pretty similar, eco-grief, eco-despair, eco-rage. There's, there's a book on my bookshelf. I haven't picked it up in years. It's called Green Rage. That's what they're talking about. I haven't, I haven't read it. I, I, in years, I can't even remember it. it's about, but I remember the title, Green Rage. I'm pretty sure that must be what it's about. I'm pretty sure I have felt it. It's a normal response to having our environment devastated. If a burglar breaks into your house or apartment, you're going to be pretty upset. That's your space. It's what you need to kind of get along and survive that's happening on massive levels all over the place. So that's eco-anxiety, eco-grief, eco-despair. And it's wired into us. It's hardwired into us. And the reason that we, some people don't really do anything is they go into that freeze response. I mean, it's hard enough to keep the rent or the mortgage paid and food on the table as it is, right? If you've got kids, it's even more because they've got all sorts of activities and things going on. They're scheduled all the time, right? And they've got you running in a million different directions, even just without kids. I don't have kids and my life is pretty complicated as it is, all these things to attend to. It's hard to now, like, wh where do you even begin to do something? And so, and the problem feels so big. And we know that our economic system is set up in such ways so that we kind of profit off of this. We're sort of, our, our, our system of exchange and transportation, everything's sort of dependent on this way of life that's killing everything. So where, where does the average person even start with this? So I think that's why people don't do anything. If you want, if you want to see them upset, show them a picture of a rainforest being cleared. Mm -hmm. you know? Show them a picture of a mine that's devastated something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Show them a picture of a manure lagoon from excessive uh, cattle production. Right. Literal lake of all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, where yeah. maybe a meadow used to be, they're upset. But what? How, how do you even get traction about this? And so people go, "Oh my God, I can't do anything. This is so upsetting." And they kind of clamp down on the stress that they feel inside, and they turn away. Pass me the wine. Right. Right. Like that's why. Like we just try to anesthetize and get through the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. As somebody who is helping people thaw out a little bit mm -hmm. so that perhaps we can step forward and, and start shifting, um, is your observation that doing something, like if you can't go and protest where your favorite beach is being destroyed, like for me back home right now, mm. um, you know, what can you do? What, what can you do that's small and doable without 
in a way, I guess what I'm trying to say is without feeling like it doesn't matter because everything matters and especially collective. I always think about those trees they planted in India, like they 60 million trees they planted in 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was not by, done by a single person. But There's an article up on my phone right now that says that the NASA satellite views are showing mm-hmm. that the earth is greener than it was several years ago. Mm-hmm, because of and India and China. The- Mm-hmm. Yeah, India and China, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So those of us who don't live in India and can participate in the 60 million trees, like what are some things that still feel empowering and how can we kind of talk ourselves into everything matters? There's so many ways. And actually that's, um, you, you mentioned my video on eco-anxiety. That's the first of a series and the series is going to be about exactly that what little steps can we take there's so many little steps and it totally depends on the person their beliefs and their preferences their life situation in the somatics we talk about basically baby steps or the technical term is titrating if you can't take on an enormous dose then take on a little bit and stop and notice how it makes you feel I got one of those metal straws the other day. I don't use straws very often. Those who know me know that I'm a total coffee fiend and I've got my beat up looking old uh, uh, metal coffee camping, you know, I forget what, what they're called. I have my portable coffee mugs I take around with me all the time. Just stop and think about how much better it is to do that than using this constant stream of cups right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you live in an apartment, you can still get a composter, right? And then you could divert your food scraps out of the waste stream. And that now you've got this compost. So what are you going to do with it? Well, there's community gardens around, they'll take it. Mm -hmm. You can stash it somewhere under a tree in a park where it can go back into the earth where it belongs. I mean, there's so many little ways. When I worked in the Long Beach Shalgayan Center, my supervisors didn't know this. But I had a worm composting bin in my clinical office. It was great. The kids loved it. I'm sure that all the supervisors were going, ew, worms, germs, get that out of here. Ah. Yeah, <laughs> we have a worm like, composter out on our deck. What's that? A worm composter on your deck? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, you know, take as many of the scraps as we can rather than throw them into the trash. We turn them into feed them to our worms and then our and then uh feed them to our tomatoes that that'll plant that grows one tomato uh, over the whole summer. But, you know, it's like it's going back into the earth. And if you don't have a tomato, a tomato or a garden, there's gardeners around who will pay for that or at least barter you some of their produce for that. I mean, it's a simple thing. And if you've got kids, it's really cool because it teaches them about the other side of the cycle now everybody likes the side of the cycle where there's life and growth and all that light but there's also another side of the cycles of life where things break down and decompose into their basic elements right so they can be reassembled into new life the cool thing about the insects that do that, the decomposers, like the earthworms and the pill bugs and the earwigs, and there's a million of them, is 
I read in my naturalist handbook that if we didn't have those decomposers, including some of the bacteria that break down like insect shells, the whole earth would be covered in insect shells at a depth of several feet. Wow. Yeah. Everything needs to break back down. And it's really cool to teach kids about that. They're fascinated, at least the little ones, before they've learned that it's quote unquote gross or untouchable or what have you. Right, right. So these are very, very doable, very doable steps for, for city folk. There's a million of them. Um, make sure that your city has a, a little park that you can go to that have the indigenous plants. The plants are indigenous to the area. If they don't have one, maybe insist or start one mm -hmm. or find a little patch of land that you can get people to contribute to and then watch the pollinators come back depending on your geographic area and the ecosystem that you're in. Even the desert has really cool stuff going on. All sorts of life. It's just really subtle. You don't see it unless you really know where to look for it. Because things have to kind of batten down the hatches and that's an old sailing term, I guess. They've got to really shore up and, and prepare themselves for just the onslaught of difficult conditions, heat, cold, what have you, drought mm -hmm. in the desert. But it's there. That's amazing. Life finds a way. It's there. That is so, great. I really look forward to linking your YouTube channel in the show notes on our website and then putting up the eco-anxiety um, intro and then adding the other videos later as they become available. Great. So for those of, of us who are curious and want to take action and do maybe get involved in ecotherapy on the client side, what does an ecotherapy experience look like? Is, is there like a, like I know if I'm coming to you for somatic experiencing and to process some trauma, I know kind of the idea of what it looks like, but are you gonna take us to the woods? Like what, how does this work? Do we go in groups? Do we go, is it a one-on-one -on -one experience? Does it take an hour, five days? What does it look like? Yes, all the above. And that reminds me in our conversation about types of ecotherapy, I didn't nearly hit them all. We talked about horticulture, animal therapy, and wilderness therapy. Um, there's wilderness immersion therapy. It kind of depends on where you live. Um, I'm trained to do outdoor sessions in an urban environment. I imagine that this summer I'm going to be engaging in more extensive training. I'm not a qualified wilderness guide at this point by, by any sense of the word. You can do groups and workshops and even an hour or multiple hour one-on-one -on -one sessions in a natural environment. Fortunately, where I live here in Long Beach, there's several. And um, sometimes, you know from your somatic training about the existence of what we call the felt sense. And the felt sense is simply all the sensations and all the nonverbal felt experienced information that's coming to us from our physical body. Like how do our feet feel on the earth? What's our heart rate like? How deep is our breath? What's our temperature? Is something around our chest constricted or is it open and soft and relaxed? There's so much information in the felt sense, including from our five senses and just tracking that, even, even though in Long Beach we don't go like really into the wilderness, 
there's places like the Nature Center and the Colorado Lagoon and Jack Dunster Reserve where you can walk in these beautiful plant and animal communities and just drop into your senses, drop into your felt sense. And just what's really cool about an ecotherapy session is that many times the therapist really steps back and nature's the, the other therapist, often the main therapist. And it's amazing how nature shows up. These different aspects will show up, whether it's just the particular sparkling gold of the light on the ocean if we're walking near the beach like we're privileged to do here in Long Beach or maybe a particular animal or bird or bird song or butterfly will come by and interact with us in a way that we might not have expected right or maybe it starts raining I mean the thing about going outdoors is it's not a controlled environment quite in the same way the office is, but you kind of learn to lean into that and just trust that what you need is going to happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And just always going back to experiences that we've had outdoors and the relational experiences are always very interesting too, um, as we all relate with nature and with each other differently. I always really treasure moments where um, when we go back to Bulgaria, my, my dad doesn't speak English and Roland doesn't speak Bulgarian. But somehow when we are out in the woods and, you know, we're getting mushrooms or just walking or gathering sticks for fire, it's like the relational field appears out of nature. And it's really healing and really helpful. That's exactly what I'm talking about, Galena. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting when you don't have language, like uh, maybe you should speak more about it because I'm kind of like a sight observer, but what's it like for you to not have language and we're in nature and it seems like everything's fine. Well, it's, well as a guy, it's a blessing not to have to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you can just drop into your felt sense. I mean, in this podcast, we're a little bit limited because we don't have a visual and we're just dependent on this verbal information, right? But as you know from somatic sessions, some of the most powerful stuff happens when the nervous system is just doing its thing and reorganizing and the therapist better be quiet and get out of the way and let that happen. And it can be much the same in nature. The wordless experiences can be all the more powerful. And of course, the therapist is there as, as a guide and a lookout and possible grounding and doing all the same functions they do in the office but oftentimes it's about just kind of stepping back and letting the nature experience take over because we're wired for that we're not so much wired for these constant indoor environments and sitting down I know that's one of your favorite topics sitting down versus not sitting down mm -hmm. and staring at a screen which can be so damaging to not only our visual system, but our souls sometimes. It's so brutal. You know, I often talk to my clients and students about just the sympathetic drive, the kind of like the internal sense of emergency, just because you're in a narrow visual field and in nature that's taken care of. Yeah. Maybe you squat down and look at a strawberry, you pick a mushroom or you marvel at a little ant and then, 
back out you go into natural setting, which is more open, more wide, more peripheral, and not so kind of like focused and manic. Exactly, exactly. I was just out in the Eastern Sierras this weekend, and that's just a sense of spaciousness. And in my experience, the eternalness of the mountains, you know, the Sierras aren't eternal. There's a very specific geological time stamp, but for my little tiny experience as a human being, those things are amazing and massive and eternal. And you can drop into that energy space and your felt sense, just like, oh, just sort of mm -hmm. give yourself to the mountain, if you will. You can put your hand on it. You can look on it. It's pretty cold out there right now. And it's just so different. Um, my friend that I was with said something really wise um, that we don't, we're talking about how in the city or in a dense urban or suburban environment, there's such a buzz, there's such a charge. It's almost palpable in your felt sense and your energy senses, which can be spiritual, sure, and they're understood in the scientific sense through mirror neurons where we can pick up these mm -hmm. unspoken signals from each other's bodies right well that's all over in the city just the density and and the and the artificial urgency you're talking about and my friend was saying yeah it that 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 charge nurtures me but it can burn mm. and out in the spaciousness of the open sky and the mountains and the snow and the desert in the rain shadow of the Sierras and the east side, you just say, oh my gosh. I could feel my shoulders dropping, my chest opening up, and it's just, okay, I'm here right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not racing ahead to an hour from now or next week or when the deadline is. I'm just here right now. So that's another example of how ecotherapy can help. And then I was moved to help because I saw a bunch of trash out there at one of the, the DWP is fortunately doing a little bit of rest, restoration on the Owens Valley from where we sucked all the water out of Owens Lake um, to feed the insatiable thirst of Los Angeles. So they're restoring some of the watershed and some people have left a bunch of trash out there and I just, I had to take it couldn't leave it there it's still in my car in fact wow this is us going around the beach picking up trash <laughs> yeah. finding stuff making mandalas out of them and then uh, putting it in the trash picking them up to the dumpster yeah so one of the areas that like we Maria and i talk to our readers and our listeners and our clients a lot about self-care and it's one of the areas where they have trouble, a lot of times they feel selfish for engaging in self-care. So I sort of feel like ecotherapy or, or doing something positive for the earth is a way to not only free themselves of this guilt of doing something for themselves because they're doing, well, I guess there's not only, but they're, they're freeing themselves because they're doing something not only for themselves, but for, for somebody else or for, for something else in this case. So what are some areas that you think are like powerful that can both you know help the earth and have a big impact on somebody's well-being? 
Well, for me, being sort of an emotional repository for a lot of trauma during the week, I mean, yeah, you let it flow through and you have good boundaries, but gosh, when, you, when you're in the middle of it, a little bit of it sticks. I find myself with my hands in my garden just about every weekend. So I'm growing a bunch of arugula right now. Actually, the arugula grows itself. So once you start growing it, it really takes off. So it's really cool because I can share it with other people. But, and, and I should say, getting my hands in the earth literally is grounding. I can, I don't know if there's a scientific basis for this, but I can feel it in my felt sense. It's just, it's, it's, it's in the moment procedural. It's just being here right now and what, what needs to be done right now, sort of tinkering and puttering with this little system I've set up. Most of my yard is natives and I've also got an organic garden, learning permaculture principles, just a bare beginner at it. But in so doing, I'm helping restore, well, okay. When you have native plants, they like the soil that's there, which is kind of, arbitrary because in the city it's all disturbed soil anyway so i don't know that's ever going to be the purity of what it was 300 years ago the my soil is predominantly adobe clay and the natives do fine with that um, it's somewhat disturbed but it's pretty clay but it's not a bad thing certainly for growing food to amend the soil. So there's, there's in the gar in the permaculture slash organic garden, that's where the compost goes. That's where the organic soil amendments go. And then where the natives are, I've got a bunch of uh, wood chip mulch, which will again kind of mimic somewhat what the land used to be before it became industrialized because um, he, here's another thing that folks can do if they want to uh, support natural systems. Uh, find a way to stop raking up leaves and throwing them away. Leaves and bits of breaking down materials like branches and what have you, the wood chip mulch that I have, it's industrialized, partly breaking down, but it does break down into its components and it replenishes and nurtures the soil. Even native plants draw nutrients from it. They're dependent on this nutrient cycle, right? So when I saw my neighbors the other day bagging up leaves, I said, are you going to throw those away? So I ran over with my wheelbarrow and now they're decomposing into my yard. So that's the ground cover instead of the grass, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm helping support, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm living in the city. I can't really be a purist. The botanists who study, the, there's some amazing native plant botanists in California and they are on it and they know exactly what's going on in these systems. And they can tell you about a poppy from the beach versus a poppy from the mountainous environments. I can't, the sub varieties. So this isn't going to work in terms of a pure, like if, if you live out in the country, you should probably do a little more study about exactly what's around you. But in the city, it's all sort of adulterated anyway, you know, so mm -hmm. it isn't as pure as it might be in some of the less disturbed sites. Given that, I know I'm helping heal and replenish the soil. I'm helping me. 
I'm creating food. I'm creating or recreating or restoring, I should say. Nature creates it. I restore it or help restore it. Space for all these insects, the worms, the, the microbes in the soil. So one of the things I like to say about ecotherapy is that with one intervention, such as doing an organic slash permaculture garden or planting a bunch of coastal sage scrub where I live near the coast, one intervention, you can heal multiple, multiple levels at once. Mm -hmm. From the soil bacteria to the plants, to the insects that rely on the plants, to the birds that rely on the insects, to the slightly larger creature. I mean, there's all sorts of different creatures around, right? All the way up to the raccoons that eat some of the, like the grubs and the bigger bugs in the ecosystem. All the way up to me, the individual who's doing this. And then if I'm better regulated, I'm helping you know, the relationships I'm in, I'm not quite so grouchy. <laughs> We're I great depend on that. that garden. Yeah. And depending on where you live, eventually you're helping that grizzly bear you talked about earlier. Right. Right. Hopefully not here in Long Beach, but no. yeah. You know, I, I love there's um, this beautiful video circulating somewhere on the internet about how wolves restored um, the landscape of a national park mm -hmm. just by releasing these I think 12 wolves they released mm -hmm. and then it changed the rivers because the beavers were affected and then it, it was just this massive kind of downstream effect from just these wolves being introduced back into the environment yeah to more birds more meadows like all these things because without the wolves the deer were free to to roam out in the open and eat all of the food out in the open that would never get restored. So like by them having to go back and hiding, you know, it restores the meadow and that brings more butterflies and bird that brings more birds and bigger birds. Yeah. I, so that's, little things do add up. They do. And that's a perfect example of how resilient nature is. So if you start to fall into eco-anxiety and eco-despair and feel paralyzed, if you take one thing from this podcast, remember life is very resilient. Nature is very resilient. I'm not just being what they used to call a Pollyanna, like, oh, everything's going to be fine. You know, we're losing some really, really important and terrible, you know, the, the losses are terrible and nature is super resilient. Like that's an amazing, I read that article too. That's an amazing example that Roland was just talking about. One little intervention, how the ripple effect can happen, and you can do that too. You can. It's it's really tremendous. I'm I'm enjoying seeing our yards. Uh, we have these little townhome patios here, and our neighbor, um, and we grow food. He has some food. He has some koi fish. Um, it, it's just wonderful to see fruit trees and. We're growing, you know, our share of leafy greens and herbs for us. And it's just been hopeful and, and wonderful. Even, you know, we're downtown in a busy, busy part of, of town, but we, we can do it. Um, you know, I keep thinking as you were talking to Roland about this internal parallel of the external environment. It's almost like when we start eating vegetables or start eating clean food, how we also feed all of the systems inside of us differently. 
and uh-huh. all down to the microbiome and those little bugs that need to feed in our gut. It's the same thing. And we can do this inside ourselves if we don't take care of the external environment. Uh-huh. And it comes full cycle. It's always going to hit us full cycle. If we don't go out in nature, we're going to be dysregulated. If we're dysregulated, we're going to eat crap. Uh-huh. If we go out in nature, we become more regulated. We take care of it. We belong back to our original home. And then we're also driven to eat well and be nourished because that's the vibration of it. Not in like a woo-woo way, but that's just what you are immersed in. So this is what you do. There's all sorts of self-regulatory mechanisms um, in our bodies and in nature that, and in communities, really that we're, science is just really starting to catch up with and be aware of. So just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's woo-woo. The science yeah. might catch up. Not that there's anything wrong with woo-woo, but I'm also speaking for the folks that are mm-hmm. kind of repelled by such things. Like we didn't really know how people affected each other until they discovered mirror neurons. If you Google mirror neurons, there's all sorts of articles about mm-hmm. them, including the National Institutes of Health. Well. That's how we affect each other's self-regulation. So all sorts of really neat mechanisms are there and they're just waiting for us to tap into them. So what can you do? There's so many things. You can look up voting candidates, um, political candidates, what their stance are on environmental issues and contact them and pressure them and vote accordingly. You can donate to places like NRDC or the Sierra Club or any of the folks that are pushing for environmental change. You know, there's so many things. So much we can all do. Thank you for bringing hope and the opposite of eco-anxiety. So (laughs) eco-hope. So just kind of as we land this wonderful conversation, if people want to know more about you, what you do, perhaps contact you, especially if they're in Southern California, have the pleasure of seeing you live, where can they find you? Somaticwise.net. That has all my contact information. Um, it's got my, e- my email is Andrea at somaticwise.net. Um, I can read my phone number on the air if you want. But you don't have to. We're going to put this in the show notes so people can click and find you. And we're also going to embed um, the video on eco-anxiety, which I love, and probably link to a couple of your awesome articles on good therapy. Thanks. I'm also very Googleable. You are Googleable. So you it are. pops right up. Excellent. I love it. Good SEO. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. This was such a delightful conversation. Um, I do feel eco-hope. I do. Good. Good. I look forward to sharing more information with you as I learn it. Um, and again, you can Google ecotherapy. There's lots out there by way more experienced practitioners than me. It's practiced worldwide. I think there's a lot of it going on in the UK, for example, um, in England. It's out there. And there's a wonderful book by Linda Bazell and Craig Chalquist uh, called Ecotherapy. And oh. it's a collection of essays. It, it's so beautiful. It's a wonderful book. And each article isn't terribly long and it's not written like a textbook. Um, all sorts of different aspects of eco-anxiety, eco-therapy, and how a person can affect change and be in these times that we live in. 
in an ecologically informed way. That sounds really wonderful. I look forward to looking that up and reading it. And I, I really hope that our listeners and readers feel inspired to look, look for more of this and connect with you as we're hearing more in the news about how being out in nature is getting prescribed by doctors all over the world, hopefully soon more on a mass scale in the US. Um, there's going to be more and more of this happening. And I really hope that um, even if it is our anxiety and despair that brings us back to nature, as long as we go back, I don't care how. Amen. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having me. You, you two are wonderful and you do wonderful, wonderful work in this world. And I'll support you in any way that I can. Well, thank you so much. Have a great night. You too. If you like today's show and want more episodes like it, you can help us by rating and reviewing the show wherever you subscribe. That means iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, or in the podcast app on your phone. Do you know somebody who can benefit from today's episode? Share it right now from the show notes, which you can always find at eatmovelive52.com slash notes. And that funk that's playing behind me, it's called Proto Funk by Kevin McLeod. Thanks and talk to you soon.